You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. I'm probably not the first one to mention this, but have you noticed the weather? And I don't mean this in a, like, I have nothing else to say, the weather is really weird, isn't it, kind of way. I mean the weather. After an unusually snow-free winter, the thermometer climbed to 70 degrees on the East Coast over the weekend. I mean, it was great. People were smiling. Everybody was outside. But it was freaky. Freaky the way the fires of Australia are burning ceaselessly. Freaky the way Venice, Italy was underwater in the fall. Freaky in the way that Puerto Rico just suffered from a devastating earthquake just a few years after a storm that they haven't rebuilt from, which they haven't rebuilt. I always think about Mother Nature being so much stronger than all the bullies and despots and tyrants. It's such a waste of time to be arguing about everything in the world when our planet is suffering. But since this is a show about good things, I'm proud to say I was able to persuade Joel Stein, funny, funny Joel Stein from Time Magazine and the author of a couple of books to be on the podcast. His new book is called In Defense of Elitism. And let me get this out of the way. Joel is a Stanford graduate. I wanted to say it before he does because he's going to say it. Okay, here are my five things. Number one, I'm loving the olives I buy out of a vat that are marinated in lemon juice. I buy them at Zabar's, the famous New York appetizing store. How do I love them? How much do I love them? Enough that I've returned to Zabar's to buy them three or four times in three or four weeks. And while I eat them, I notice that lemon has really become one of my very favorite flavors. Lemon vinaigrette, lemon pepper. You know, you can buy lemon pepper as a spice mixed together, and I I buy that. Lemon zest. When I was a kid, there was something called Love's Fresh Lemon. It was very, was it probably around 1970 or 1969? I could sing the commercial, but then you would hear me sing, so I'm not going to. But anyway, lemon. Love lemon. Love olives marinated in lemon. Number two, I love my new wall calendar. Yes, I know the date is always blinking on your phone. You always know what day it is, but I don't really pay attention to that. And I use a paper diary to note my appointments, but I like to look at my calendar. The one I have this year is made by Diana Waymar, a wonderful guest on this podcast. She has a project that is growing by the day. It's called the Tiny Pricks Project, in which she and anyone else who wants to contributes textiles with quotes of Donald Trump sewn in delicately. And she's trying to get 2,020 of these, or maybe 20,020, I don't know, by the election. And she has a wonderful Tiny Pricks Project wall calendar. And January, for example, is a textile of a vintage clock over which she is embroidered. I am a very stable genius. And if you want one for yourself, you can find it at her website. And the link is on my blog. Number three. It did start to rain in Australia last week. I don't think I've ever been happier to see rain in my life, but the country and continent is still burning, 
and so many animals have been killed. And I don't know about you, but when I see those pictures of the burnt koala bears, it just hurts. So let's keep sending whatever we can spare to the various charities. And I have a list on my page at lisabernbach.com from USA Today, how to help. There are places you can donate that just help the animals. There are others that help the fire departments. They're very specific and that would be good if we could spare some. Number four, I have avoided mentioning this thing in 79 weeks, but here I'm just going to have to say it because they make my life better. They're potato chips. I used to not like potato chips. I think I thought they were a lot of work to chew, 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 chew. And that was in the days of Lay's when they were light and greasy. Now they're thick and crunchier and much more work. Should I be ashamed? Should I be mortified? I love potato chips. Not all. I can resist the good ones, the kettle chips I don't really love. I like the, I like ruffle. A ruffle is about my level of crunch. I love a ruffle. Number five, and this is a life changer. There's something you can do if you don't want to take your packages to the post office that I didn't know about. I feel kind of stupid. I feel like saying, oh, wow, cable TV is good. There's something called point and click at the United States Post Office, USPS.com, I think. I had a fairly heavy package I wanted to send to my daughter in California. But, you know, a nine-pound package in my hand becomes like a 40-pound package five blocks later. Not to mention that the last time I was at the post office, the postal worker picked on me for no good reason. Well, get this. I don't know what I did. I I paid for postage online. I taped the box up. I left it in my lobby. And the package was delivered just as fast and cost the same as if I brought it to the post office and waited on that goddamn line. Sorry. No sneer, no line, no problem. Here comes Joel Stein. Don't go away. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Very excited about today's guest, who is, in a way, the best friend I don't know. His name is Joel Stein. He became known to me as the humor columnist at Time Magazine. And when, Joel, you were at Time... Your piece, whatever it was, cover story or or short thing, was the first thing I read in the magazine. Oh wow! In those that glorious means a lot days, to me. yes. Well, what was uh, Giscard d'Estaing doing? I don't know. But if you were if you were having fun at the expense of a latte artist, I was there. <laughs> anyway, you have this new book called In Defense of Elitism why I'm better than you, and you were better than someone who didn't buy this book. And I was on my way to the studio to do this interview. And because I am a woman of the people, I was in the subway, and a person sitting next to me on the subway said, is that real? I said, yes, but it's a humor book. And he asked me to explain. I, I mean, it was it's a babe magnet is what I'm trying to say. Well, that this was book. my hope when I came up with the title, and I feel like it hasn't really played out, maybe if, if it came out two years earlier. But I'm glad to see that it worked, at least on the subway. On the subway, it's magic. It's catnip. But yeah. the whole idea of... Okay, so the book is a response to the Trump election, 
And it's a deceptive book because first it seems like a humor book, but it's like a cert. It's a breath mint, but it's a candy mint. You know? Wait, you a actually a breath do, mint and what else? And a candy mint. Cert oh, is two, right. two mints in one. Yeah. And your book is two or three books in one. You've done a lot of research and homework on what the intellectual elite is all about and why so hated. You have gone to Miami. I mean, the one in Texas. Thank you for pronouncing it correctly. Well, you are welcome. You, you explain how to pronounce it in the book. I know, but it's hard to remember. It's spelled Miami. <laughs> okay, that's maybe so. Um, you have you have talked to Tucker Carlson. You have talked to the Dilbert guy, which I want to talk to you about too. Sure. You have you have really uh, cast yourself far and wide to understand why people hate the elites and why the elites don't like the populists and what can be done about it. Is this the book that you actually set out to write? No, not at all. I um I got kind of a blind script deal for this book from um, my publisher, which was weird because my first book didn't do all that well, but they gave me some money and they told me to write some funny essays, which I did, and then I looked at them. I was having trouble finishing it. I didn't like what I'd written. And then when the 2016 election happened and the Me Too movement, like all this stuff was happening that made my kind of middle-class suburban and, and I guess and, you know city stories seem really flimsy. So I pulled it from my publisher thinking that they would let me rewrite it. Then they asked for their money back, which I didn't know they could would do. Yes, they can. Yeah, and that's made me feel stupid. Right. I, and so I pitched them some other ideas, and they liked this one. This has been something I've been writing about in time a bit, probably since Sarah Palin, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which struck me. Yeah, so the book isn't a parody, even though it kind of feels like it from that subtitle. No, I'm... I'm very serious and very scared about what's going on in the world. You know, it's funny. When you said I grew up middle class and suburban, it's almost like an apology. It, it almost sounded like you were apologizing. There's nothing to apologize for. The way we are born is the way we are born. We can't control it. But yet being a heterosexual white woman of a certain age and a certain certain background is the opposite of a selling point these days. I get that. Like, when I first got to Time in, like, 1997, just, I mean, the, the establishment was still pretty strong, and you could just be a little punky and a little solipsistic and a little, you know, that was enough to be a new voice. And now everyone's that way, so, so that doesn't feel new. Right. And, and, like, you know, when there was just people telling middle-class white stories, like, uptake was interesting. And we've heard a lot of those stories, and other people are telling crazier stories. So it's not that I'm apologizing or I wish, you know, I had a, a, a different childhood. It's just that I realize that, like, now that there are more different voices, some of them are, are really interesting and weird and crazy, and my weirdness isn't so weird. Right. Okay. I buy that. I, uh, what I was going to tell you was in the 1980s, uh, I was very hastily sent on a book tour for the Preppy Handbook. And, oh, and you were you were how old? 21. 
I know. Okay. I know. It was yeah. crazy. And th- there that was, was such a big deal. I mean, everyone knows who's listening to your podcast. Sorry, go on. Well, I never talk about it if I can oh, help really? it. No, but I'm going to talk about it now in the sense that I thought, oh, aren't I cool? I'm 21. I'm Ivy League educated. I come from New York. I'm going to tell all these people in America what's so great about the world I come from. And I quickly learned that my world was unappealing and <laughs> and that it came across as as nothing more than arrogance and, and immaturity. And I learned very fast because my book was so successful in the South that I really had to listen more. And I mean, I had to explain about the clothes. I just had to. For sure, yeah. And I had to explain about keeping one's hands in one's pockets, lest one have to pay for everybody. And I remember reading that in uh, my suburbia and learning about like sparkling waters. Oh, yeah, sparkling that was waters. Big for me. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and I quickly learned that my East Coast, uh, call it elitism, I didn't see it that way at the time, but maybe I didn't pay attention to that word or concept, I really learned that that was something that I had to bury in my in my backpack as I was going out to meet America. And I fell in love with America. And I think you Why did too. Very popular in the South. Well, I think uh, uh, preppiness never really lost its foothold there because it's a more traditional right. part of the country. And I learned, I mean, people would gator for me and women were girls in the South. And, you know, the cotillion life was still big and still is, by the way, hasn't really changed. But my point is that I became a fan of America on my first book tour because eventually, by the time I wrote my college book, I had visited all 50 states. And really, in the still in the early 80s, there were still a remarkable difference between places, which has uh, evaporated a little in our, or a lot, in our uh, Petco, Starbucks, Walmart, you know, as, as the stores all become the same and the the interesting cool neighborhoods give way to real estate deals, you know, the the specialness of many places has sort of gone away. Yeah, but I think the feeling of division between cosmopolitan and rural in uh, tons of countries is exasperated. Mm-hmm. Um, exaggerated. Uh, it's com- even compared to then when things were more different, people are more aware of these differences. And I think, you know, you have, um, you know, Senator Kennedy yelling about our goat milk latte drinking, right. you know, liberals. So I think there, there's still an elite that people are more mad at. And, and, I think the approach you probably took of saying going to an Ivy League school is amazing, living in New York is amazing, isn't wrong. It's just that you were approaching it probably with a little more, like me, a little more smugness than people are comfortable with. Well, as you point out, when you're 21, you're smug and precocious, which is, Especially if you've gone to an Ivy League school. Right, right. right. And let me point out that you haven't mentioned Stanford yet. It's been really hard for me so far. I mean, you've noticed I've been stammering. Like, I've been just because most Duh. of my brain is like, how do I fit in my my alumni? Uh, I know alumni. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. alma mater is 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 alma crying. Mater. It's yeah. crying that you haven't said it, but now you have. Oh, thank you. I can breathe now. This is yeah, much better. I know. Yeah. I it know. is weird because I'm 48 years old that I care about like how I did 
in classes or my SATs when I was 17. 1480 you had. You I, know, that may be right. I don't remember. Maybe it was I, exactly. I was going to try. And I, you know, I went right past that so that you wouldn't have that problem. But no, anyway, so Joel, there are at least two Americas right now. The people who hate us, and us is in quotes, and the people we hate, and hate is in quotes, I guess. Yeah. But yet it does feel more angry, hateful, separate, divided. It's not just sort of impatience with the other. It's real rage, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you've done an amazing job of this. But just to be clear, when we when I talk about the elite in the book, I'm talking about the intellectual elite, which doesn't right. mean, you know, the Bernie Sanders 1%. Right. You know, a lot of people in the elite, you would, if you went to Davos, you'd see that they work for NGOs or colleges or they're journalists. Or, you know, there's lots of jobs that don't pay as well. And there's plenty of rich people. I'd say most rich people in this country aren't really members of the intellectual elite. They, you know, they, they've made a lot of money owning small businesses. Um, you know, you could own all the Arby's in Nebraska and you would never be a member of the elite unless, you know, you own them because you were Warren Buffett and got really stoned one night and bought all the Arby's in Nebraska. I'll tell but, you but, something. I think that a lot of the richest people that I know, and I don't know if they're like all the rich, rich, rich people, they don't care about politics so much. A lot of them will be fine no matter who's president, no matter what ideology yeah is a sort of the one that we're buying into. And they and some of them say to me, oh, Lisa, you watch the news too much. You're getting too upset. Stop watching TV at night. Stop reading the paper. Because they can afford not to, to feel like every day something new is going to affect their lives. I, that's part of it. But I also think a lot of people who try, you know, set out to make a lot of money and succeeded, or even those who didn't succeed, but if that was your goal... I think you are the other kind of elite, which I talk about in the book. Which right, I the call boat, the boat elite. elite. Right. Yeah, because Donald Trump makes this crazy speech, because it's almost two years ago now, where he had railed against the elite in the campaign, like many Republicans have done and continue to do. And then suddenly, it seemed unscripted, but everything he says seems unscripted or is unscripted. He says uh, at the speech in Minneapolis, wait, why are they called the elite? Like, we're the elite. We have... <laughs> we have bigger houses and we have more money and we have nicer boats like we should be the elite and that's when there was this essay that i had read from 1900 by vilfredo pareto this fascist italian economist where he defined the word elite kind of the way we use it and he talked about there being two elites that are in constant battle it's not populism doesn't bring forth a real rule of the people it, it's it's just a way a mechanism for one elite take control over the other elite and like the way i looked at it was our the elite that you and i belong to we don't want a yacht we, we just want to give a ted talk right but the other the other kind of elite that trump is kind of a leader of and so is you know uh, boris johnson and so is modi and so is is a group of people who who want money and power and think that anyone who thinks that anyone who operates for any other reason is is a phony and you're naive to believe them. It's a very Tony Soprano's view of the world. So I think a lot of people who try to get money really aren't interested in anything besides power. And they see the world as, you know, a bunch of tricks and mechanisms and laws that people use to help themselves. Well, I think a lot of people uh, enabled by the values of Donald Trump think that, and, and but it's unfair to put it all on him, 
there are a lot of people who think the more money you have, the more you've won. And the more stuff you have, the more you can prove you've won. And it's not only Soprano, it's Real Housewives of wherever. It's The Real Housewives are a great example, because when I was starting to write this book, I'd ask people who they think the elite are. And a lot of people I know, particularly people who don't live in cities, would name the Real Housewives. Really? And they are so far from what I would consider to be, you know, the ruling elite. They're not housewives. That's for sure. They're not housewives. And um, uh, uh, what I love is the the popularization, I suppose, of the word socialite, because that that word doesn't mean anything anymore. But I remember Lisa Vanderpump, who's one of these housewives, asked me to dinner, which was great. I went to this restaurant she owns called Pump, and she was talking to me about how she couldn't get a book published. Mm-hmm. And that people wouldn't pay her to make a book. And that, to me... And she wanted to, because I think she she wanted to be a member of that kind of class, to jump kind of, at least, or have a foot in both mm-hmm. worlds of the elite. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to me, that's the difference, right? Like, um, there's a lot of people who can get books made who aren't making any money and who aren't in that world of throwing wine in each other's faces. Well, like it's the, elite fu- would ne- the intellectual elite would never throw wine in someone's face because that's a good waste of good wine. And also, the intellectual elite don't know what we're talking about, probably. The, the Real Housewives? Yeah. No, we've heard of them. I've, I've never watched the whole episode, but we're aware of who they are. I mean, okay. we can't name them. Right, can we name can't them. name them. Right. Lisa Vanderpump, NeNe Leakes. <sighs> Bethany and Bethany. Bethany, Bethany, Bethany Frankel. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is that no matter where you come from in this country, whether it's New Jersey or Miami or New York or Miami, doesn't indicate whether you love this country more than any of the rest of us. And well, that is, well... I, I slightly... I've, so when I went, I went to the county of America that had the highest percentage of Trump voters. Right. And I, I did... So in my neighborhood, there's no American flags up. Like if I well, I wanted American to flag, talk about the flag, yeah. What about you? Do you see flags up where you are? Yeah, actually, um, Manhattan apartment buildings, at least for July 4th, and certainly after 9-11, there was an American yes. flag outside of every building. I was there for 9-11. And, yeah. And it, it Do you remember very... that? Say again? Do you remember seeing all those flags suddenly oh appear? Well, I had a weird reaction to that because it felt like angry nationalism. There was a flag on every monitor that you'd walk by. There was a flag from, you know, from a ragged flag from every car, especially if it was a car service. There was one on both sides. Like they were oh, the that's pres- right. You know, that's the right. right. Um, yeah, I was scared. Like, it felt like, it felt violent, that nationalism to me. And I think that's the difference. Like, there's the people in Miami, Texas, the county that had the highest percentage of Trump voters, a lot of their identity is built on some level, they know that they aren't the... If they had to talk about where they stand in the social ladder, they wouldn't put themselves at the top. And they know they're shrinking. They, you know, their way of life in, in rural America is less, getting less and less powerful in the culture and in, until recently in politics. And so a lot of their identity isn't built around the kind of things that are built around my identity because I consider myself higher up on this ladder. So it's more more individual, like what I did and what I have. 
And for them, it's more what group am I part of? So a lot of their identity is about being American or about being Christian or both and how great and superior those things are. And in that way, it makes them, in some ways, it makes them more patriotic. Being an American is more a part of their identity than it is mine. Tucker so Carlson talks about that in, when he talks in my book, that someone had said to him, an Australian had said to him, nationality is just a passport. Right. Because he can leave. And right. I can leave. Right. You know? And, and a lot of people can't and don't want to. They're tied to their community and their families in a way that I'm probably not. Yet the fact that you stay in the country when you don't have to, Maybe that makes you more of a patriot than those that have fewer options. I like that. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that could work for you. I, I mean, yeah. I honestly, I fell in love with your your new friends who were praying for you. And I would like to get into that, too, if we have time. That yeah. apparently you like the infirm in the world of Miami, Texas, as the... Um, outsider, the Jew who spent a week with them, they are now praying for you and and proselytizing you and trying to get you, your friend Jerry has... Called a couple days ago. I, I owe him a call. To, to um, find out how how much of those books and, and, and videos you've been watching about Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, although he, I think he, to his credit, just likes to talk to me and to, to find out what's going in my world and tell me what's going on in his world so that they don't feel quite as far apart. And I appreciate that. But yes, I went to the First Baptist Church of Miami, Texas, and um, they, they, there's a little mimeograph sheet they hand out during the services, and there's a list on the back of people they're praying for that week. And it's the president and the troops and then like whoever's sick in town. Mm-hmm. And I am and the you. only one... And me, I've been on that list for over two years. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of like really heartwarming, but a little bit upsetting. Yeah, they're praying for me to find Jesus. Now, they, they're they never going to give up. No, I think I'll buckle before they do. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think there's a chance that you might just say, yeah, screw it. I'm going to I'm going to become Christian so you can free up your your prayers for somebody who really needs them. I mean, there's a chance I'll tell them that. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if I'll do it. But yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to make them happy. Yeah. Well, if, well. okay. So you, you stay at this bread and, uh, bed and breakfast with bread called Cowboys and Roses? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think I'm the only one who stayed, who stayed there. No, there were a couple other people who signed the guest book, but it wasn't a bed and breakfast in the way that we think of it. Oh, right. Because... No one else was staying there. I was just a, including the people who live there. So I was just a rental house, basically, without a key. Yeah. So after the woman showed me around in the house, this amazing woman, Deanna, who introduced me to everyone in town, she left, and I was like, "Oh, wait, you forgot to give me the key." And she said, "Well, we don't use keys here," which led me to the follow-up question, which was, "Do you all have guns?" And she said, "Oh, yeah, I have one in my purse somewhere." And I thought, oh, my God, this is a town that skipped a very basic level of security and went straight to, like, the scariest level. Right. So, yeah, I checked, I checked the address two or three times every time I came home to my house. It's, it's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, Scott Adams is a person I have never thought about. And uh, when I read In Defense of Elitism, it made me think, oh, I guess I should really pay attention to him. When I Googled him, 
Joel, I got all this business about him and his 29-year-old bikini model Mm. girlfriend. So I am not sure how important he is in (laughs) the lessons that you share with us in the book. Explain to me why him and, yeah. So Scott Adams is the guy who created and still writes and draws Dilbert. Right. Um, He was a pretty liberal guy. He lives near Berkeley and in a town called Pleasanton. And he took a real sharp populist turn right around the election of Trump. And he, and he goes onto Periscope, which is the, you know, the, the live video mm-hmm. part of Twitter, every morning. And then he goes on Fox News. The president invited him to meet him recently. Um, yeah, he's become a real kind of uh, populist, conspiracy theory-loving facts don't matter cheerleader and midlife crisis owner maybe well, yeah, the, his, he got divorced from his wife right when he was building this giant house and he now lives in alone and he did get this bikini model girlfriend um so and he's and he's really he's built like he works out a lot so yeah it all added up to me to but he thinks this has nothing to do with the midlife crisis he thinks this is him him coming to some realization about the world changing for the better with Trump and populism. Is there any part of you that agrees with him? Is there any part of me that agrees? I found a lot more to agree with with Tucker Carlson than with Scott Adams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, the part that I agreed with that you, having worked at Spy, might agree with is that in essence, giving the middle finger to the people, smug people in charge of everything, is very appealing. I mean, that's kind of what we did for a little. And it's kind of what a lot of Trump followers are doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that part appealed to me. Like, the cost of that seems way too dear, um, you know, because I think democracy is much better than having strongman dictators running around. But other than that, yeah, I, I can... I can get into that. Like, I once spent a couple of days at Milo Yiannopoulos. Oh, you uh, did? For, yeah, for a Business Week story. Wow. And, and you can, I mean, you can kind of start to feel like, oh, I could see why this is fun. You could start to see why it's fun if Milo is playing at being a contrarian and not really one. No, because we were, when we were young, I don't know, I think we were poking holes, you know, poking at the system. Right. And... Um, being contrarian, and I think there's a there's a place and a role for that for sure. Yeah, I guess I guess with Milo, I see a great deal of hypocrisy, but I, but I didn't spend any time with him as you have. Yeah, he's uh, he's nuts. Yeah, I, and, uh, by the way, by the way, these people scare me, and I feel like we're at a real moment. That's why I wrote the book because I feel like we're at a real moment when we're about to throw everything that's been so carefully built over centuries away. Yeah. Like literally throwing democracy away. Yeah. And that and and throwing expertise away. Uh and, and you know, basically looking at Pol Pot or Kim Jong un and thinking that these people are okay and those those decisions might be okay. And it, I'm just really, really scared uh about what might happen. So I'm in no way saying that like I agree with these people. I'm just saying I can start to understand them. 
Well, that's a big that's a big point, and that's a, a very important thing to say, which is that rather than um, uh, condescending to everybody, the important thing is to try to understand everybody, which which you clearly are trying to do, and and you know some of what you wrote actually made my head hurt because it was smart, and I didn't want to believe it. Yeah, I mean, most of my friends are just so angry, and they want to go straight to the solution. Like, and sometimes they, they simplify the solution almost in a way that the great simplifier himself, Donald Trump, does, which is like, how do we get rid of Trump? Once we get rid of Trump, everything will go back to normal and be great. Right, And no. that's just not true. No, like, it's not he's, true. He's, you know, just a little mole on, on you know, the, the horrible skin cancer that we have. So, yeah, it's happening in every country. And it, it, people are reacting very strongly to a change that's occurred. And they do not like this change, uh, especially if you are not living in a city. You do not like the, the, all the changes of globalization. I use that term not just economically, but, mm-hmm. you know, all the cosmo- cosmopolitan belief systems, uh, inclusion, diversity, immigration, just change. You know, the knowledge economy, it's freaking people out. And they're objecting to it. And people want to go straight to the solution. Like, how do we get rid of those people who believe this? How do we stop Republic? How do we get rid of the entire Republican Party? Is the way mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. kind of... And, and that's, you know, it, it's a very fight, simple kind of attitude. And I just, I, I don't have solutions. I'm not a politician. I just want to understand what's going on, at least make that first step before we can even talk about a solution. Yeah, I think you're right when you say, let's get rid of them. That's scratching an itch. That's not yeah. that's not changing the way people think and the way people deal with one another. And I think that's a really important point to underscore, which is change is happening so rapidly that we don't know how to accommodate ourselves to it and process we do. it. You and I well, well well we don't like the populist change, but the kind of change that they're objecting to, I don't even notice, right? Like, I've been disrupted. I was a magazine writer. Like, I can feel this change. But, but if you live in a rural area, the, the things that I don't even consider to be changes, like gay marriage or trans people or, you know, they're, people can't wrap their heads around that in Miami, Texas, where they truly believe there are no gay people in town. So, right, right, so right. we're asking them to, and they're aware of our culture. They watch TV. You know, they, they're... They're part of it, but they, they're freaked out. Like these, and if you live in a completely white, completely Christian town, these changes are crazy, and, and, and they just want to stop it. Well, but they're nice people, and that's, and that's the thing. They were nicer. Yeah, they're ni- I mean, maybe nicer than yeah. we are. Yeah, and a lot of the way they live is very appealing. Like they don't look at their phones all the time. They gather at church, they gather in each other's houses at night on their porches. No, they, and they trust one another. They, yeah, they one guy asked you, "Would you leave your son with anybody? What a mile and a half from your house was that?" Yeah, it? and he meant he didn't just mean one person. He meant, "Would you leave him with anyone? Right. All the people?" Right. Which, by the way, is one of the the uh, Bhutan uh, happiest the happiness quotient right. thing. Right. That's one of the question. Like one of the twenty questions on their test is. In an emergency, is there someone who lives within walking distance you can live your, leave your kid with? So th- they're not wrong. And then if you watch, like, Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or talk to these people, their view of a city, even if they've 
you know, visit them is dystopic. It's like you don't know your neighbors. There's homeless people everywhere. It's loud. It's dirty. You're you're on your own. Your family, your extended family doesn't live near you. Like, like this is what you want our country to be. Like we, we have to stop this dystopia from happening. Um, What they don't realize, I think, is that we live in a very interconnected, complex society. And if you, if your solution to a problem is just to like shoot it in the head and cut it off, you're going to go very far backwards in time and experience a lot of real pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no. You don't, you don't really want a dictator to, to quickly do things. Um, so I don't know. That's the thing. Like the, the intellectual elite has to go make the argument to people that you are right about maybe the way to live or you are right about there being problems, but the solutions to problems is not nearly as simple as, as your, you know, your conspiracy theory tells you. Joel? It's time for your five things. Number one. Okay. Uh, I went with indoor plumbing. Yeah. I uh, just feel grateful all the time when I think about how recent that is and how awful life was before indoor plumbing. And I don't know how to make it work. Uh, so I'm just very grateful at all the expertise that has gone into giving me indoor plumbing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, indoor plumbing. I, to- I totally agree. I take it for granted. I, I sh- it, my toilet sparks joy. Does yours? Right? Yes. Yes, Marie Kondo, it does. Like, do you ever walk around and think, I should get rid of my toilet? Never. Never. It sparks joy. It does spark joy and relief. <laughs> Number Especially two. for the for the, uh, for the Japanese who have the toilets that do everything. Oh, my God. They do, you know, they do your math. I do. <laughs> they definitely do your math. Okay, number two. Um, speaking of... Uh, I went with Kiva.org. Very nice. Very elitist uh, <laughs> NGO because it gives it loans, it's micro loans to people mostly in developing countries so they can start their own business. And it, isn't it mostly for women to run their own business? You know, I I have it set just for women because that was the compromise I made with my wife if, I, if we made that our place to give money to. So um, you can set it that way, but no, you, you can get money as a male entrepreneur too. Ah, that's very cool. That's very cool. And you get a connection to the person who's got your loan? Yeah, in that Sally Struthers kind of way, where they don't have to write you a letter or anything, but you can just you can kind of like see a picture of them and look it up if you wanted to. That was a really good, that was a really good reference. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to expand on it. Number three. Um, I went with my wine cellar. Nice. It's the most elitist horrifying thing about me that that uh that i would beat myself up for but it's so fun to go downstairs and pick something that like goes with your meal and are you a a white and red drinker i am but it's always a little bit of a harder sell to get my wife to drink white so we wind up drinking more red Mm -hmm. i know exactly how she i know how she feels light Light reds yeah yeah Yeah. do you have the same problem i i'm not a big fan of white wine truly I mean, I, I spend the summer drinking rosé to make up for it. Oh, maybe you just haven't met the right white wine. It's possible. Yeah. It's quite possible. So you have a wine cellar. I, I'm not hating you for any of this, by the way. Really? Yeah. Well, not you. Not yeah. I. The listener is. <laughs> I doubt it. Number four. Ding! I'm going to go with uh, my Sonos 
speakers. I listen to a lot more music, especially classical music. Again, I'm, I'm really hammering on the elitism. I, I, I see that, yeah. yeah. Now, I've seen the, the ads, but I don't know what Sonos... It's a delivery system. It's not the music itself. It's not. No, like you, you, I use Spotify or right. something like that for the music itself. But, it, but they're just so easy to use um, either through... Alexa through your phone that I wind up listening to a lot more music and knowing a lot more about music. Oh, that's cool. Okay, and number five, ding, ding, ding. Oh, which is the most obnoxious of these things? I guess the uh, sous vide machine. <laughs> let's go with the sous vide machine. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not obnoxious. You're not obnoxious. You just play obnoxious. I don't know. That's Maybe what it's I learned something in the book. that, well, you went to Stanford. What? What? You did? <laughs> no one gets into Stanford from the East Coast. No one gets into Brown. I think into Brown. Well, I wouldn't yeah. have gotten in to Stanford, and I wouldn't get into Brown today. So No, no, we wouldn't. Uh, so tell us. great, which is yeah. proof, I think, that the meritocracy, as, as broken as it may be, as Bernie and Elizabeth will tell you, is better than when we were kids. Yes, yes, for yeah. sure. For sure. Just tell us about the sous vide machine. Do you, it's a way to freeze your food. It's a way to. So New York, you don't have a sous vide machine, do you? No, I do don't. You cook? I do. Oh, not. Well, I don't cook with a capital C. I cook, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the great thing is it just circulates water at, a, at whatever temperature you choose. So you put your food in like a Ziploc bag or a vacuum right. seal bag and you drop it in and it and you can leave it in there as long as you want, and it comes out exactly that temperature. So you can put a steak in there, and it comes out exactly uh, medium rare, and you don't have to, you can't get it wrong. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same as, like, remember the bird's eye? I mean, they still exist. Yeah. Bird's eye frozen vegetables in that bag, and you yeah. drop it in water. Yeah. It's, just, it's the same concept, except you set the temperature exactly. So Wait, but so you, you don't put a raw piece of meat in a sous vide yeah. bag. You do? Yeah. And then it, it, it's in a very warm bath at the temperature that you're gunning for, and if you leave it in long enough, which isn't that long, it comes out at that temperature, and then you can brown it if you want in a pan. Okay. It sounds it sounds above my ability. I'm currently no, wrestling. the easiest way of cooking. It's dropping a bag into no, water. No, I know, but everybody says that the Instant Pot is the easiest thing, and I've this already had so many fights with my Instant Pot. Really? Oh, really? What do you guys fight about? Beans or like? right? Uh, I don't even want to go into it. It's okay. too embarrassing. Um, Joel pictures. Stein, uh, I am so happy to have made your acquaintance. I am so happy to have read in defense of elitism. Why I'm better than you are, and you are better than someone who didn't buy this book. It's published by Grand Central. Yeah. And you know what? Um, you're invited back on this podcast anytime you like. And if you do have a podcast or if you next time in Los, I'm in Los Angeles and there are three people on your block who have podcasts, please drag me in. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Everyone on my block has a podcast. So that'll be perfect. 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 And um, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you. Uh, I don't know. At some elite conference, I'll meet you at the Aspen Festival. Oh, at the Ideas Festival. There's nothing that would make me happier. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. Bye. 
You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Joel Stein, the journalist and author of the recently published book, Defense in Defense. Sorry. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Joel Stein, the journalist and author of his recently published book, In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You Were Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book, published by Grand Central Publishing. You can follow Joel on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at The Joel Stein. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, and you'll find links to everything that we talked about today and maybe a few others. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan, helped by Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay warm and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 